1: Genevieve Kosky.
2: And Scott Tobias.
3: Tasha Robinson is absent this week, having disappeared into the New York underworld, possibly never to be seen again. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we've got two depictions of loneliness and spiritual isolation, both written by the same screenwriter. Scott, can you tell us about these movies?
2: Sure. Director Martin Scorsese made his breakthrough with the 1973 film Mean Streets, which found in the New York neighborhoods he grew up in all the drama, danger, guilt, sin, and romance life has to offer. After venturing west for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Scorsese returned to New York, teamed up with screenwriter Paul Schrader and intensified the New York as dreamscape approach of Mean Streets to depict the alienation and madness of Vietnam vet Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro. Scorsese and Schrader would work together again, but Schrader would soon launch his own directorial career with Blue Collar in 1978. First Reformed, one of the most acclaimed films of Schrader's career, is now in theaters. And like Taxi Driver, it focuses on a man whose despair drives him to consider some dire actions.
3: On the first episode this week, we'll revisit Taxi Driver. Then later this week we'll discuss first reformed, what unites the two films and what separates them. One more thing there will be no you talking to me jokes. Not one. <laughs> That's our promise to you, the listener. We'll be right back.
0: Yeah, people do anything in front of a taxi driver. I mean anything. Yeah. People
1: too cheap to, to rent a hotel room. Oh travel, hurry up, will you?
0: People want to embarrass you like you're not even there it's like you know like a taxi driver doesn't even exist this city here is like an open sewer you know it's full of filth and scum i think i know what you mean Travis. but it's not going to be easy you guys get to be a secret service man. what well, i was just curious because i thought maybe i'd make a good one hey what kind of guns do you guys carry 38s, 45s, 357 magnums, something bigger maybe. Hi, I'd like to volunteer. Why? Why? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life. That will ever mean anything. How much for everything? $350 for the Magnum, $250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 38. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me?
1: I don't know who's weirder, you or me. <laughs> you talking to me? Well, who the hell
0: else are you talking? You talking to I'm
1: the only one here. I don't believe I've ever
0: met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You will never see a more chilling performance than this. Robert De Niro in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver.
3: When Taxi Driver made its way to television in the late 70s, it played with the following note attached to the end credits. To our television audience, in the aftermath of violence, the distinction between hero and villain is sometimes a matter of interpretation or misinterpretation of facts. Taxi Driver suggests that tragic errors can be made. The filmmakers. It's an opaque statement that seems to nod to some of the controversies that started to swirl around the film upon its release, and which still swirl around it. A famous Mystery Science Theater 3000 bit concerns a two-star review of Taxi Driver featured in Leonard Maltin's Movie Guide, once a fixture on every movie lover's coffee table. It concludes... To some, Scorsese and writer Paul Schrader's perception of hell as a crazed taxi driver's vision of NYC was brilliant. To us, this gory, cold-blooded story of a sick man's lurid descent into violence is ugly and unredeeming. Scorsese's director's note seems like an unnecessary nudge, telling viewers how to interpret the film. The Malton Review is well outside the consensus opinion of a film that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes that year, and has since been widely hailed as one of the greatest movies ever made. But neither is entirely off-base— the New Yorker taxi driver is a kind of hell, but it also has a dark allure, even as it confirms our worst fears that in a godless world, nothing can be forgiven and everything is allowed. For Travis, it's a place of unchecked loathing. He claims to wish for a real rain to come and wash the scum off the streets, but without that scum, who is he? He defines himself by what he hates and fears, pimps, pushers, non-white people. The script is never explicit about this, but it's there in De Niro's performance and women. Maybe women above all, whom he doesn't understand, to whom he ascribes otherworldly ideals of purity, whose rejection sends him into a rage, and whose corruption makes him want to kill. For two hours, Scorsese traps us in his head, rarely leaving his side. We're with him as he makes his tormented rounds and gets to know him well enough to recognize that he's not going to be all right, and that the bad ideas in his head will take him over. And we follow him as he acts on at least one of those bad ideas and gets called a hero for it. It's not a pleasant place to be, but there's a terrible beauty to the film, and maybe it is unredeeming. And maybe some stories have to be.
2: I mean, they hate me.
0: Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. girl should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? What do you mean women's lib? You're a young girl. You should be at home now. You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. You're full of shit, man. What are you talking about? You, you walk out with those fucking creeps and lowlifes and degenerates out on the street and you sell your, sell your little pussy for nothing, man? For some lowlife pimp? Stands in a hall? I'm, the, I'm square? You're the one that's square, man. I don't go screw and fuck with a bunch of killers and junkies the way you do. You call that being hip? What world are you from? Killer. That guy sports a killer. That's who's a killer.
2: Sport never
0: killed him. He kills. He's someone. a Libra. He's a what? I'm a Libra too. That's why we get along so well.
3: So, what did everyone think of this film, Scott? You, <laughs> I actually gave you a book on the making of Taxi Driver. Yeah, well, I mean, what's well, uh, Taxi Driver? I know, it's a, I know it's a favorite of yours, so we'll start with you.
2: It is. It is probably my favorite movie of all time. Um, or it certainly is. Sort of the Rosetta Stone for me in terms of cinephilia. It's the film that really got me to pay attention in a serious way. To what film direction was and how a really great filmmaker could kind of lead you to certain places and color your perception of things. I mean, this is so much a movie inside Travis Pickles' head, not just in the narration, but also in the images and what gets focused on, and you know, and how he sees New York, not necessarily New York as it, it really is. So there's that too. I think it's a, an extraordinarily powerful, both seductive and horrifying portrait of alienation. It's an incredibly vivid vision of this particular. Time in New York, and I, I'm just endlessly fascinated by it. I think the color photography is extraordinary. Bernard perman's score is uh, really something, and nothing you would expect from Herman. It's a really unusual one for him. There's just a lot to talk about, and it's a film I find myself drawn to over and over again. Certainly as a youth, but then it's it's something I revisit as an adult and see in a different ways. You know, I think it speaks to you. And this is a, this is certainly a man's film. I guess <laughs> a young man's film. I mean, this is a film that spoke to me in one way. When I was sixteen or nineteen or in my twenties than it does now is when I'm in my forties, I can kind of see it a little differently, but I think it still has a lot of value, so I'm obviously a fan of the film taxi driver it's a Scorsese is my favorite director and this is this is the film that really caught my eye for him it was kind of like it opened up the whole world of cinema for me so, so that's kind of where <laughs> taxi driver
1: okay now we'll careen over to the other end of the spectrum to me i this was my first time seeing taxi driver which was a film that i i'm not gonna lie i kind of actively avoided partly because of what i knew of it and not really ever wanting to undergo that experience voluntarily and partly because i was afraid. of not liking it because of the specter that has grown up around it and you know like it is considered one of the best films of all time and when you don't like one of the best films of all time like that's always kind of a rough experience and I didn't hate Taxi Driver like I, I feel like I say this a lot and it feels so cliche when I say it but it's a film I admire a lot but because it is like it's film as character like you are inside Travis Bickle's head like the filmmaking reflects travis's viewpoint throughout the film you are very much forced into his mind in a way that like i kind of found myself resenting as the film went on like i don't want to spend time with this man like i don't want to know how he ticks i don't want to be seduced by his world like i don't want to be here you know and i feel like i can I can feel that as a viewer and as a woman and at the same time recognize what Scorsese and and Schrader, but especially Scorsese, are doing to create that sensation. I, I appreciate how they create that sensation, but it's not a sensation I really want to go through again, personally.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is staying very close to a man as he falls apart and doesn't really have together to begin with and just completely falls apart by the end. Yeah. One thing that's always puzzled about this movie, which is there are a couple of scenes where we do leave Travis, and they both work. I don't feel like they're lessening the impact of the film, but it is a, it's, it's an odd choice considering mm-hmm. how much is... What, I mean, as just you know someone who's, who's seen this film more than I have, and I've seen it a few times,
2: what, what do you make of that? Well, the big one would be the one with Harvey Keitel and Jodie Foster, That's right?
3: the big one, and there's also Brooks and... Yeah. Shepard, um, yeah, which I, feels
1: like a completely different movie. Well, in, in some ways, the characters feel
3: like so many. Of the characters feel like they're so they're so different from Travis. They almost all feel like they're from different, different yeah. movies in some ways.
1: Yeah, and I guess like it almost feels like a well, I guess yeah, Travis is watching in that moment, right? He's watching them from the street in that right. moment with, with the, yeah. two, the the two of them. So like, I guess it is sort of like even though he can't necessarily overhear what they're saying, it does kind of make sense as like a scene that is happening outside of his experience and Mm -hmm. therefore outside of the rest of the movie
2: yeah but i think the the major one would be the with with and and jodie foster and i don't really have a good rationale for why it's in there um because i don't think it's one of those moments that calls attention to itself in the way that say the famous shot away from him when he's making that phone call to uh sybil shepherd's character i mean that shot you you know you know what was being articulated there but i think there just must have been a sense that this scene was needed to establish the hold that Keitel's character Sport has over Foster's character Iris, and they felt uh, there may maybe a feeling, and probably a, g- a good feeling, that this was needed to give depth and dimension to the movie. But it, it does kind of break from what I think is a very disciplined movie, otherwise, in terms of you know sticking to Travis's perspective in uh, holding us in that uncomfortable place.
1: I think it's also necessary to add complexity to travis's motivations and desire to save iris and like i mean i'm in no way suggesting that like iris is in a good situation but it does add a dimension to her character and her motivations that we don't see when we are solely viewing her situation through the eyes of travis
3: so this is something we touched on a little bit before, but there's a dark romanticism to this movie that it maybe it's just my interest in the period and everything but i i, I want to like wander around the streets I, I mean is it just me or or is it i'm looking generally is looking at it's me like not me. crazy it yeah sure
1: is not me uh, but uh, i i have known you guys long enough to <laughs> to know that this is an era you feel you know drawn to so well it's like i was, I was thinking about
3: the first episode of the deuce yeah and like yeah, that, oh, yeah That rundown you know, section where all the prostitutes hang out but it's also where all the movie theaters are and it's like yeah i, I kind of want to Mm-hmm. Go see the bird with crystal plumage.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, or, or cross the street and see the Iger sanction in this. That's yes, the, that's yeah. the movie that's playing across the street from some time. Sweet Susan, which is the movie that Travis takes. uh, I've I've
3: seen one of those and it's not the porn film. Betsy. (laughs) I guess actually it's a pretty fun movie.
2: Yeah, uh, Clint Eastwood directed that one. Um, (laughs) But uh, they're both around in 1975, which is when the film was was Mm shot. And I think it's something uh, I don't want to digress too much, but I think it's important to note because I mean, even when I first saw this film, it was like, how ridiculous is Travis to take (laughs) Betsy to a pornographic film? But then at the time, that was when porn was kind of in vogue. Like it was legitimately something that couples went to see. Maybe not Yeah, not a
3: Uh, first. Even if you're you're that freewheeling, I think even 1975 uh, when it was shot, um, you know that's not a first date activity. Well, and
1: also like that is not necessarily the motivation behind Travis going to see these films. Like Travis watches pornography out of some weird twisted i don't i don't even know if it's shame or just a perversion but he's not seeing pornographic films like for the same reason that like swinging couples in the 70s may have been going to see Mm -hmm. pornographic films Mm -hmm. i don't think i mean i have not spent as much time with travis over the years as you have scott but (laughs) that's just it i mean
3: i've seen this movie multiple times and you know i'm locked into like the cold logic of his downward trajectory but i don't necessarily even know what makes i don't know i know it's like it's what time i spend in his head and then hear him talk i don't necessarily you know has he ever been with a woman before does he have did he used to have friends we don't know anything about his past and
1: i mean this is obviously bringing in context that is way far removed from the era in which this movie was made but it was definitely on my mind watching this film which is the the incel movement sure. the mm-hmm. involuntary cel- celibate movement uh that has resulted in some horrific acts of violence in the last few years and like it just i think another reason that i stayed away from taxi driver for so long is that the perception I have of certain people who really, really love Taxi Driver, the people at this table excluded, <laughs> but I feel like this is a film that probably is a major touch point for the <laughs> incel movement. Yeah, and,
3: and even beyond that, just sort of like the dorm room poster of De Niro with the yeah. guns and the mohawk and it's just not, you know, you're glorifying the, the
1: worst aspect. It's you're,
3: d- you're glorifying aspects of this film that don't need to be glorified in that
1: way. It's the American psycho effect, you know? Yeah.
2: It's a legitimately dangerous film. I mean, John Hinckley famously right. um, credited, it was did what he did for Jodie Foster. And I think that it's a thorny issue in terms of like, how much responsibility filmmakers have for the impact that Mm -hmm. their work has on society. I tend to favor the artist (laughs) in cases like this, but
1: well, yeah. And it like, that like almost drove Scorsese away from filmmaking for a while. Right. Like the, the feeling of responsibility. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I mean, that's the thing that's, I mean, the word seductive, I think the word seductive applies in the sense that like you've got that Bernard Herrmann score is, has, has a kind of a romantic quality to it at times. It's dark, but present. But I, I do think the film, as much as maybe we don't know who Travis is or Travis is scary or or obviously dangerous and unhinged, the film really captures in a profound way a certain mode of alienation, of urban alienation, of male alienation. You get a palpable sense of how much he's hurting. And I think that people men especially young men especially me when i was when i was younger responded to that aspect of the film you know i've never i've i've never even gotten in a fist fight in my life I, you know I, i'm not i'm a nonviolent person but the feeling of being apart from the rest of society of not understanding women of being rejected all of these feelings are captured in, in such a palpable way in the film, that, that you feel it, you know, and, and so so the film does maintain that kind of sense of danger, and that it remains. So yeah, I mean, sometimes I can see how one would look a little bit askance at at people who like Taxi Driver <laughs> too much. I, I uh, think but- I think it's
1: not about liking Taxi Driver. I think it's about like idolizing or celebrating or elevating Travis pickle sure. specifically as yeah. you know as a character. You know, it's like I said, it's the American Psycho effect. It's not about liking the movie. It's about the extent to which you identify with that character Mm -hmm. and identifying with sort of like a core, like very basic sense of alienation is one thing identifying with the action that it inspires is an entirely other.
3: Yeah. I mean, Scorsese, that's, I don't want to say Scorsese has that problem, but certainly with this and with Goodfellas there, there is, you know, he makes the violence. Yeah. (laughs) And he makes the violence so, I mean cinematic and Goodfellas like scary and funny and thrilling mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think these are these are you know Goodfellas is not a pro-organized crime movie uh, but and, and I think ultimately the, you know it's not shy away from showing the price exacted by that life but yeah. at the same time I think showing the seduction And showing the appeal of it is part of it. Like I watched the original Superfly last night, and (laughs) uh, you know that's a movie that there's not as much finesse to it. I think think there's complexity to its depiction of drug dealing and this this character who wants out. But at the same time, you know that's a movie that certainly has been taken as an instruction manual (laughs) over by by many over the years. And I think Mm -hmm. you you know run into that with a little bit with us here too.
1: Uh, Yeah, going back to the idea of romanticism and Scorsese specifically, like I feel like silly bringing this up at a table with Scott Tobias (laughs) talking. About Scorsese's oeuvre, but uh, like the Scorsese films, I do know that sort of elevate these bad men are frequently like they're a lot more fun than Taxi Driver. Like Goodfellas mm-hmm. is kind of a rollicking film, Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. you know, and they have lots of flourishes, you know, montage and big musical moments, and they're they're mm-hmm. you know they're a lot more fun. I guess this is, is the, the word I keep coming back to, and like that is one type of romanticism, and the type of romanticism in Taxi Drivers completely different. Like it's it's sorted. It's seedy, but there is an allure to it. Mm-hmm. um But you don't feel like you're having a good time. You're drawn to it, but, you know, it's not like you want to be in the movie necessarily.
2: Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I, I think I would argue, though, that Taxi Driver does have, in this carries over for Mean Streets, some really good loose talk in it. uh You mm-hmm. know, I'll, I'll see the scenes with all of the other cabbies, for mm-hmm. example. You <laughs> know, Peter Boyle's weird, like, attempt to try to explain the world to Travis, which to both Travis and to us is just completely. Uh, uh, incoherent <laughs> and funny. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is with uh, Stephen Prince, who plays the gun salesman. Mm-hmm. Oh, and his, his whole bit—I find that whole bit hilarious when he's trying to offer him all of these different drugs that Travis has, has absolutely no interest in. So he did. You know, this movie is infused with humor. Plus, you have mm-hmm. Albert Brooks, my personal hero, is yeah. very funny in this movie. You know, he gives the bit about you know uh, the buttons, the the bad uh, sure. campaign buttons. He's yeah. a, he's a funny presence I, in the movie.
1: I think I'm thinking more filmmaking. Than the, the writing oh, you're, you're totally you, you know? right I, yeah. I don't want to defend yeah. it
2: I, I think it's got moments It's not completely humorless And it really helps To have a couple of moments right. like, uh, Moments of, of lightness I guess Or comedy or dark comedy in yeah. it. But um, it is not as you say It's not an inter- entertainment In the way that Goodfellas is
0: May 10th Thank God for the rain Which has helped wash away The garbage and the trash Off the sidewalks I'm working long hours now Six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes even eight in the morning. Six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, 350 a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. All the animals come out at night skunk pussies, buggers, queens fairies, dopers, junkies sick venal someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets
3: voiceover in movies, it's it's terrible right, except when it's (laughs) Perfect. Which I think it's kind of perfect here. Uh, why does this work when so many voiceover narration does not?
1: I think part of it is what we've already talked about in terms of like the movie being so much about putting you in his head. But I think also, and this is, I'm just going to kind of like lob this ball into the air and let you guys catch it. But like, I, I think it's like calling to the noir influence in, yep. in this. Movie. So, is, so
3: is the score too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think part of the effect of this movie comes from our ability to hear what he's saying. And, you know, see how what he's saying is reflected in the world, but also to see where he's wrong, to see this is this is not, you know, this is someone who's so deep in his own way of seeing things he he can't see beyond it. And I, I think that's part of why the narration works as
2: well. I mean, a couple of things. One, I think generally when voiceover works, it often is in a situation like this where it gets us into the head of a very unusual Character of someone who's not normal and someone who's not going to just describe something that that the filmmaker should be just showing us anyway. So there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is again something that you said, but this is Scorsese specializes in this, which is to use a, a voiceover as a way to liberate the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you're not tied down to certain scenes that are going to get across whatever you need to get across, you can have this narration and then you can have the camera show you. In this case, the world through travis 's eyes, and plus, I just think the writing is fantastic. I mean, like there's so there 's so many passages in this in the narration that you, that are unforgettable that I could say rotely, but i 'm not going to and it 's essential to this film and, and, and well, of course we 'll we'll get into it later with first Reformed, essential to that as well and the fact that that Travis is kind of keeping a, a diary and keeping his mm-hmm. thoughts and it has this internal struggle that we 're able to access i mean as hard as this character is to understand at least there is this to kinda of
1: grasp onto, right? And I just want to point out that we do have an intrusion of a different voice at the at the very end of the the letter that mm-hmm. that Iris's father sends to him and we're hearing that presumably in The voice of iris's father but like i don't know there's something about like the idea that it's all based in something that is written somewhere like you know like because travis is journaling and because we are hearing this this letter being read like it it gives the sense that like it's all exists on a page somewhere you know that that just kind of like makes me think of travis's whole thing about like getting his life organized like it creates a structure in the film and it also creates a structure like in travis's mind
2: that ending i think is so brilliant that letter and what it represents because i think and i think it's one of those things that just makes taxi drivers so eternally relevant which is what is our attitude about violence what is acceptable violence what is unacceptable violence in travis's mind there's absolutely no difference between A politician and a pimp in my in my view Mm -hmm. i think he needs to kill right and so he can't kill one and he kills the other society though decides that it's not okay to kill the politician but it it is heroic for him to kill the pimp when we we i think should understand that that is absolutely not the case and they're born of the
1: same impulse like they're they're Mm -hmm. both because those men are associated with women that he has either been scorned by or wants to protect or some combination of the two Mm -hmm. you know
2: this is just done in a moment at the very, very end of the movie. You can think about the film as a, as a catharsis through violence, but I think at the very end, there's that suggestion that uh, it's going to repeat mm-hmm. itself. That that really jarring adjustment of the mirror and gives the sting, that little, little jolt,
1: and, and the the musical sting that was. Herman's last sting. Yeah, <laughs> he, I
3: mean, he's not okay, and that's that's yeah. you know, any sense that I think it's a much it's a much different movie without that. I I think it's a, in a much more irresponsible movie if, if we see that as as uh, uh, as him being you know fixing himself through this.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's important though that it does open up in that one way to comment on society more broadly, like because the movie is about. Travis Bicklin about that type and about getting to know the, the way he operates and thinks. But I think to make that, to make it sort of a broader cultural observation about violence in, in this country and how it's perceived, I think it kind of gives the film another you know level of complexity.
3: So it's kind of a revelation to go back to this era of Robert De Niro's career, isn't it? I mean, this is, yes. this is why, why, why he's Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. It,
1: my boyfriend walked in while I was watching it, and he's actually never seen Taxi Driver either, and he was like, "That's not Robert De Niro." I was like, "No, it is." <laughs> and he's like, "He he looks so like normal. Like he just looks like an every guy, y- you know. Like or he he looks like another face in the crowd." And like I think that is like kind of. Essential to Travis Bickle's character, like he just, and like part of that's just he's young and he his face hasn't changed into like the sort of caricature of Robert De Niro where we, we know <laughs> today the, the
2: face yeah, yeah that but, developed that developed in the eighties like yeah. the late eighties he started doing the face the we're, face if only if we're, we're no we, angels
3: if only everyone can see Scott do you know the what face. the faces mm,
2: <laughs> yes mm. uh, um, yeah I, I remember you you insulted him a little bit <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah I read a biography of Sergio Leone a while back and and it was you know they got to a chapter on once upon a time in America and De Niro they're trying to get De Niro to be in the movie and of course he was eventually but he's like yeah you know I I, I don't know when I take a role it takes me a year to prepare for it so I have to be very careful what roles I take it's like this is definitely a di- different era of De Niro <laughs> performance yeah his, his
2: his level of preparation was so extreme I mean
3: he did Drive a cab for a while, right? If I'm, if sure I'm not mistaken. Did. I and, can't. You
2: know? I, I, but, you know, the thing about the De Niro of this movie and of The Godfather Part 2 and of Mean Streets is just he's just wiry mm-hmm. and dangerous and just electric. I mean, there's something in a way that he just never has been late career. I mean, people change. I mean, they can't necessarily help how they project themselves, but this younger De Niro is just so riveting to watch because he's unpredictable.
3: And it's almost like, you know, kind of touched on this before, but but everyone else, I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way, but you're right, they are kind of in different movies. Like, this is De Niro's movie, and, and everyone else just kind of drifts in and interacts with him and then, and then drifts away, and, and, and some of it's brilliant. I mean, the, the Boyle stuff's brilliant. Trudy Foster, you know, you, you knew, watching this, I mean, I was too young to see this at the time, but, but I imagine mm-hmm. if you saw this, you knew this was someone that's going to be have a career that's going to stretch for years and years because she just so you know just effortless on camera just mm-hmm. just so natural
1: we're told she's 12 and a half like Jodie Foster was like maybe a year older than mm-hmm. that at the time but like she seems older and that's like a terrible thing to say about this character but she's just like has such a self possession and mm-hmm. you know like a lies beyond her years quality you know but like that's always defined Jodie Foster especially when she was a child actor you know it's like she always had a sense of being older than she was not necessarily in looks but in bearing
2: and i think and that of course is so essential to iris i mean that she is a a girl a very a young girl who's been forced into into this and, and had to learn a little bit of something about street life and how to get along and what it takes to do what she has to do and yet at the same time i mean there's a there is a innocence and naivete there as well i mean there's, you know there's certainly a whole another very dark movie to be made about that character because yeah. jodie foster adds all kinds of dimension to iris
1: i have a question about harvey keitel's character do we think that tommy Wiseau saw this movie and modeled his entire <laughs> yeah. persona on sports because i think that there's a little bit of that that's for, that's for
2: sure <laughs> Yeah, he does have the does have the hair uh, yeah. for sure, and, the, and kind of the the tank top. The bo- the, the, the the you know, yeah, no, maybe maybe so. They not just they can't you just kind
1: of... hear that character going, "You're tearing me apart, Iris"? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being silly.
2: <laughs> uh, he's good too. I, yeah. I, there's um,
1: not 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 a whole lot of screen time, but makes yeah, it I mean, count. he's
2: got two really big scenes. Right, he's got mm-hmm. he's got the scene on the on the stoop. Three. With, Okay, the stupid De Niro, and then the second
1: the, the, time with Travis after he shaves his head. Okay, and, right, and, and, then, and then, then the, the third. Guess, okay, you yeah. right it,
2: so three. Um, but he's funny in that for, you know, and, and it kind of brings back that old chemistry, and it almost reverses it from Mean Streets between Keitel and De Niro. You know, it's, you know, Keitel doesn't ne- isn't necessarily the sort of actor he he would just immediately say, yeah, that's who you want to cast in this role. But I, but Scorsese had used him again and again and again, and I think he really. Um, you know sells his character uh uh, well
1: and of course scorsese himself makes an (laughs) appearance perhaps the most vile character uh, or vile (laughs) bit character i should say and uh like what, what do we think the thinking was there in terms of him giving that role to himself to do in this movie in particular I, I well, think he necessity.
2: Just... I, I mean, the, I don't want to bring in the extra textual, but I think it was. Oh, like, you know? I think it was like, well, we really don't have any anyone for this role. I'll do it myself. Yeah. Um. But I, I think it's he cast himself pretty well in the sense that he's just he had that Mephistopheles look going with <laughs> the beard and just you know he has that that Scorsese manner of speaking, which I don't think people were familiar with at that time but uh but of course the other weird thing about it is is that scorsese makes a a, an appearance earlier in the film do you remember like Mm, he's 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 sitting he's sitting on he's sitting outside the palatine campaign offices that when Sybil shepherd's introduced in that slow motion and he kind of picks his head up and it's scorsese so i picked up on that yeah yeah And and i don't think we're necessarily supposed to believe that they're the same person sure. but it is scorsese in both instances yeah
3: i mean i think if you know not knowing the actual reasoning behind it it just strikes scorsese strikes me as someone who's just going to dive into the deep end of any film he's making and and if it's it's a plunge into the dark heart he's going to be the darkest part of that dark heart of, of, of new york city yeah i'll never know is he serious or is he is he just talking um, oh and that's yeah. yeah i don't know if he has intent to kill or if he's just you know, freaking out the cab driver, or on you know, just lo- as lost in his own head as Travis is.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would probably guess that he's that he's just talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Travis is more the uh, quiet man of action type, but uh, we never know. It's just and it just kind of is one of those things that just becomes one of the many things that pl- ends up playing into Travis's head and of course reinforces a not terribly enlightened view of of both women and and african-americans
0: mm-hmm. yeah
3: which yeah which, i mean that's that's subtext in this movie i mean i remember years ago amy talvin had an essay about how it's a little bit of a failure of nerve not to make him a, more, a little more blatantly
1: racist but mm-hmm. you know it's
3: just the way he looks at the the black cab driver and a couple of other well, things he's pretty
2: I mean, racist he's solid. i mean would you, you think it was yeah, hidden his racism uh,
1: no but i think what keith is saying is it's not voiced it's all there in in looks you know you know and so it's it's possible to ignore it or to or to claim to not see it in in a way that it wouldn't be if Travis as a character had engaged with that. Yeah, and I also more. think
3: it's a little bit less a failure of nerve than kind of true to the times. Like I think he's mm-hmm. someone who's with it enough to know that being racist isn't acceptable. And he's not going to admit that part of himself out
1: Well, loud. and I mean, he does have that line about, like, he'll drive anyone. And, you yeah. know, it, it's like within the hierarchy of badness. he Because, ha- I mean, Travis despises everyone. Like, he, he drives everyone and he despises them all. But there seems to be an implied, like, hierarchy of evilness, mm-hmm. like, within this, like, hell that he sees himself in. Well, and, and black people are presumably, like, even worse by virtue of being black. And he's pretty In loose his with his eyes. The, In his eyes,
3: mm, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Let's I mean, clarify this. He's yeah. a and like he's pretty loose with the homophobic slurs too, which were more socially acceptable mm-hmm. at the time.
2: Had he, well, I guess he would have been out of. He wouldn't have been to prison. He probably would have been reasonably happy that uh, Times Square was transformed, as it was, even though it denied would deny him certain pornographic movie houses. Just this general idea of the scum or low life or something—people that the it, it, streets need to be cleaned up.
3: I don't know that he would, though. Like I said, in, in before though, I I think this is someone who is lost without something to oppose. Yeah. you know, mm. I think it's just someone who, you know, is is defined by. What he's not, and there's a lot of others in his life. There's a lot of othering uh, of the world and, and what he does, and, and that's almost everyone that's not him.
2: Yeah, and of course he he is also a low life porn movie frequenter who mm-hmm. you know who, who uh, I think other others would look at askance.
1: Sort of another. Implied, but maybe not engaged with to the extent it could be. Like, he is a Vietnam vet, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we're that's not that's never actually explicitly said. We know he was a Marine, but we didn't necessarily know that like he served in Vietnam. I think it's safe to assume, but yeah, yeah. I think we can assume or infer that that is perhaps coloring his view of the people he interacts with and the the world that he is moving through yeah
2: I and mean, I, I like i like how it's how it's just you find out that he was honorably discharged from the marines uh in the interview sequence at right. the beginning of the movie and it kind of leaves it at that and i think that you could you know just describe him at least at a, even at the start this the starting point is being a tremendously damaged person uh and, and connect that damage to uh, things that he you know saw experienced did in vietnam and so maybe this is also a movie that is speaking to a certain type of person that was coming back and couldn't shake uh, some of the experiences that they had when they were in vietnam
3: so kind of winding things down a little bit but but um what is this uh, leaving out the you talking to me scene mm-hmm. uh <laughs> what is the scene that comes to mind when you think a taxi driver that defined the movie for you i'll Go just ahead.
1: i'll just say the the massacre at the end like yeah. the 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 god's eye the god's eye view and that whole sequence I, I mean obviously it's sort of the bravura sequence of the film you know and i having only seen it once it is what sticks with me mm-hmm. and then i would also say the the scene in the uh theater with sybil shepherd's character and just the the discomfort on both ends but especially on hers like that was you know i I talked a little bit about feeling a little resentful of being like forced to empathize with this person who i didn't want to to empathize with throughout this movie and like that was a scene where i like had a Another touch point to like, you know, and and still experience those uncomfortable feelings. But from a a stance that I understood a little more as a viewer, you know, and so that scene felt very visceral to me Mm -hmm. because of that.
2: For for, for Betsy's point of view. Yeah, for Betsy's point of view. Uh, Yeah. For me, it's hard to identify any one moment because because the, the film's so so effective overall and it, it kind of changes from bit to bit i mean i think the hallway shot is it's just so striking that that choice I mean, given that we are we are going to later see in extraordinarily explicit detail this massacre that occurs for scorsese to use to find this moment so painful to watch that he's going to turn away from it that he, the camera's going to track uh, off of the hallway while this relationship ends for travis's a very uh, striking choice and something <laughs> worth uh, thinking about. So there's there's that moment. Other ones.
1: Keith, do you have Yeah, one? I, mean, I was thinking, I
3: mean, just the driving scenes in general and the voiceover, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and you know, it's such a signature shot. You know, if you boil down Scorsese's filmography to a few sequences, I mean, just that would be. One of them for me, I remember um, I reviewed the pilot of, of Vinyl, which Scorsese directed. And there's long scenes of that of driving around this recreated 70s New York. It's like, oh, it's Scorsese driving around 70s New York again. I didn't, yeah. didn't see any more of that. Um, but I, I'm, I keep thinking of the scene where he knocks over the TV that's, the, oh, that's yeah. the other one that, that yep. is that yep. is, that, yep. is I mean, that is someone who's just checking out on the world you know, in, in any sort of pleasure he once took in it, it just it is
2: you but know, that it's seems to shock to him too though I mean yeah. it's shocking for us but I think it's not his reaction to that is he, he's startled when that when that happens he's, yeah. you know, he's sort of kicking it back in the the other TV watching sequence of you know American Bandstand I don't know what the song is that is Late for the Sky by Jackson Brown yeah I just I, thought, I think that's a really kind of uh, beautiful scene too and there's uh, like
1: a pair of shoes that he's focusing on like or like yeah. what, what, i i don't understand like what was happening there there's like an abandoned pair of shoes in the middle of the dance floor
2: yeah i don't know if, <laughs> has, that, has that, been, that been explained i i noticed that i never yeah i noticed that, never, yeah, not, not, I noticed not, that I too that. this viewing and i want, i wondered what the significance of that was but i just yeah i mean i, I think you're right A lot of, just the driving scenes getting that getting that sense of what New York look like I mean just him walking around at the beginning you've seen it on posters and books and clip reels I mean this is uh this is kind of a forgotten New York that he and to me it's just the look of the 70s -hmm. is so defined by taxi driver
3: and New York at that time you know at a low a low point in its history and uh, not to rebound for a little while either. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's,
2: dirty, violent, et I mean, And
3: lost too. I mean, this is not a place we could, you know, you can, you can go to these, these blocks and you won't see anything like this anymore. Yeah. Um, well we could stay here and talk about taxi driver all night, but, uh, I think we'll wind down this individual discussion. We'll come back to it with the next episode when we link it to our other film. So we'll, we'll be back in a moment with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Let's start with a letter about The Rider. Genevieve, can you share that?
1: Sure. Bennett from Ohio writes, Watching The Rider, I was reminded of Darren Aronofsky's 2008 film The Wrestler. From the protagonist's theme, story, documentary-like camera work, and even the title, I couldn't help but wonder if The Wrestler was an influence on Chloe Zhao's film. Randy, the Ram, Robinson, and Brady Blackburn both have to leave the sport they love for health concerns. Both struggle to adjust to life outside of the ring or rodeo in various ways. Their familial relationships are difficult, and they live in poor financial situations. Both films feature a landlord threatening to take their trailers away. They also both have a desire to return to their passion despite the risks, and they even take up unsatisfying jobs at a supermarket in an attempt to fill the void. The obvious difference is the decision both protagonists make at the end of the films. I don't want to get too into spoilers for listeners who haven't seen one or the other, but I think there are important reasons, both internal and external, that cause Brady to make a different choice than Randy. Brady is younger than Randy and might have more to look forward to. While Brady does occasionally smoke marijuana, it seems to be more for healing and relaxing, while Randy's vices are a source of ruin in his life. Brady also has an example of the potential consequence of continuing to ride in the form of Lane Scott, and I can't remember such a figure existing in The Wrestler. Finally, Brady has a more stable support system among his friends and family than Randy. When Randy looks up from the ring, he sees no one behind the curtain. His daughter has told him she never wants to speak to him again, and Cassidy has left him too. But Brady looks up to his father and sister watching for him. He knows his well-being is important to the people in his life, while Randy feels alone, like his entertainment is all that he is. I'd love to know if any of you thought of The Wrestler as well, or if you know of any other movies that share these similarities. I can't believe we didn't think of The Wrestler. I I, I
2: did, I think. I I did at the beginning of the film, uh, of, of him dealing with that injury, that head injury. I think it did occur to me, but it didn't. Not to this extent. I mean, the parallels are exceptional, and I appreciate Bennett pointing them all out.
3: Yeah, it occurred to me a little bit, too, and it, but this maps it out uh, really well. Um, full disclosure, we should mention that we're all friends to one degree or another with, with uh, Rob Siegel, who wrote The Wrestler also with the founder and he wrote and directed a film called Big Fan. He's got a film coming out this August called Cruise and and you know I'm a fan fan of his work but I can't really speak that objectively <laughs> about about uh, what he's done. But yeah, that's... that's but I
1: think we're, we would all be fans of The Wrestler yeah. Uh, yeah. without that association. You know, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty great film. Yeah, for sure. But I, I think like maybe the reason it didn't strike us to bring it up in the conversation is because as Bennett points out, like the endings are so different in terms of the choices, the Protagonists make, and he does a really good job outlining why they make those different decisions. You mm-hmm. know, but like in terms of like what you walk away from the film with, it's a, a very different uh, sensation that you walk away from each film with in terms yeah. of the protagonist choice.
2: Yeah, but I mean, and both films do such a great job articulating all of the elements that go into the choice that they ultimately make at the end. To where the endings of both films are are really beautiful and earned insensible in very different ways you mm-hmm. know and, and in a way they're both triumphant in, yeah. a, in a sense um e- even though they 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 are you know d- diametrically opposed um uh, but yeah i think i think suggest a double feature yeah. on on once <laughs> once the rider hits streaming or something i would uh, i think it pairs up perfectly with the wrestler
1: yeah definitely
3: we also received a voicemail from johnny in kentucky about star wars
0: Hey guys, this is Johnny from Wilmore, Kentucky. Love the show. First time caller. I just yesterday finished rewatching um, The Last Jedi, and I last night saw Solo, and am listening to uh, episodes nine and ten of your show, wherein Scott raised the question uh, whether Star Wars is still George Lucas's Star Wars, and at the time he came down that uh, yes, it is still George Lucas's. But now that we're three films into the Disney Star Wars universe, uh, just wondering if you guys, if you still felt that way or if you're starting to see some originality in the series and what your thoughts are on that.
3: So the question basically is, is Star Wars still George Lucas's Star Wars? That's That's a good, you know, we came down pretty conclusively. On one side before, yeah. but has has your opinion drifted away since no, then no it 's
2: totally george lucas 's The problem is that it is like he 's like a ghost haunting <laughs> the whole enterprise <laughs> uh, you know here 's my the, here my take on solo and the my disappointment with solo, which is reasonably entertaining but totally inconsequential, is that because of George Lucas, Star Wars has to have consequentiality to it it has to have. You know, bigness and, and and vision, you know, and you can say that even of the prequels, which I, I think by and large are, are not successful, you cannot say that they lacked ambition and vision and a certain amount of world building that was going on. And And so you can't get away with pulling a Marvel with the Star Wars series and just giving people low stakes story uh, that spins off of this universe or there's some sort of a entertainment. It's gotta be, it's gotta be something a little bit more than that. And it's, it's a really, it's tough. I mean, I really do think that the Lucas Specter hangs over all of these, these films. And, and, uh, and if you go the solo route, I think you're in trouble. At least least that was my impression.
3: There's also though, that solo has to do so much service to the mythology though. And so much is about establishing where Han comes from, how he got his last name, you know, right. how important you know, how, stuff, how this stuff, <laughs> did you see it? You, see, you see, I see, I haven't seen it yet. No, <laughs> yeah, you, you in America, yeah. uh, but, but as how much it um, interlocks. And I think, I think that's, you know, that's another way in which maybe, I think maybe the, the mythology that Lucas created is maybe a little too, it's, it's too serviced. You know, I, yeah. I think maybe I, I can't you know, a thought exercise. I can, and I know others have done this as well. Is like, would this work better if it was just some other character having an adventure? Change it a little bit, remove yeah. remove all that. And I think, you know, all will know Aaron Reich as some other, yeah. you know, adventurer versus, you know, having to live with him in the shadow of, of these characters that I his created. I mean, Donald Glover, too. I mean, he's a lot of fun in the film, but he's kind of doing just doing Billy D. Williams in a way, mm-hmm. you know. And and yeah, I mean, it's it's just I mean, Solo is not a terrible movie. It's, no. it's fine. Yeah. But it is inconsequential is the right word. And I think that's kind of why... It hasn't connected with audiences as well either. It, it just feels like one you can skip if you want
2: to. Well, maybe they're being maybe some audiences are punishing the little jolly by not saying this, but look but look at that. It's such a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for yeah. filmmakers because you can go the Force Awakens route and maybe just mimic Lucas too close to what seems like a piece of fan art. Or you go the the Ryan Johnson route, which is my preferred route and blow things up a little bit commit some heresies here and there and then get pilloried, get pilloried by <laughs> a certain specific Bickle-esque uh, uh, fan base. <laughs> uh, and, and so where, where do you go? Like, what do you do? And I, and I don't think there's any, this
3: is not a third way. There's no, Either. there's, there's, a, there's, is, a, there's is,
2: a third way. So it's, it's fascinating to me, like given, I mean, there's no bigger franchise than Star Wars, but it's fascinating to me what a quandary it is in now. To, well, uh,
3: and I also think, uh, I mean, this is a whole thing, but I feel like the last Jedi Haters are so loud and not that numerous, mm-hmm. and I mean this is a movie that should have satisfied all of them. It's like here's your white male hero, and it's totally um uh, enslaved by everything you've seen before in terms of 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 <laughs> yeah. what you're going to to watch and 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 you don't want that either, you know, but also fewer people don't want that than didn't want the uh, the last jedi
2: yeah, it is uh as uh Ned Flanders would say. A dilly of a pickle. I'm dilly, of,
3: <laughs> dilly of a pickle. That's right. Yeah, I don't even know what that means going forward for for Star Wars. Either. I don't know.
2: I hope that Ryan Johnson gets to continue to make his his own little side side trilogy. Yeah. Um, Who knows what uh, that's going to that, be? And that nothing gets changed because I think I, I'm kind of more excited about that. But I, I think that I think that he did this series a service by breaking things a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but not entirely. It's like a shark. You got to keep things moving and evolving. You can't you can't just make a star Wars story as solo solo isn't expect that to be inspiring enough. It's a, but
3: I I like rogue one though. And I mean, it's not a perfect movie, but I I like that. It's like, here is a, let's look at this world. We know through a different lens, through a different genre, Mm -hmm. Uh, still very much within the continuity but but a different kind of thing and, good and, point. and Solo isn't it? now it might have been if Lord Miller had directed mm-hmm. it although I, I, yeah. don't, I don't know what that would have looked like
2: <laughs> it might have been more fun I think yeah. I think it would have been more fun the other th- thing too uh, about Rogue One and this is again we talk about consequentiality I mean Rogue One it's a very urgent situation most of everybody a lot of people lose their lives to do mm-hmm. to uh, deliver this important piece of information and uh and then of course you look at something like you know you could say say what you will about the the prequels but you know learning how Anakin Skywalker turned into Darth Vader is a significant um evolution learning how Han Solo got his last name that's what is that <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that's just not it's just such a piddly little thing to well- to ha- include in the movie,
3: we also learned how the Millennium Falcon lost that little wedge in the middle. That was, that was that's important <laughs> to, to, to information as well. Yeah,
2: I mean, I just, mm, okay, I yeah. mean that's fine, that's fine, but it's just I don't think it's going to cut it. Lando uh, has so, uh, Lando has a cape room. So uh, you know? George Lucas is like you know he's the ghost he's he's the ghost that is haunting this whole thing
3: i suspect lando has lando's cape room which is a pretty funny gag and it's probably from the lord miller things but it also kind of played like you know lando's cape room is kind of the navel of this franchise and just kind of let's crawl deeper inside that like (laughs) we'll explore the most minutiae you know the little bits of minutiae anyway uh solo star wars story playing in a theater near you (laughs) uh for a little while yeah that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts, their recommendations, and anything else film-related. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature a response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in First Reformed, Paul Schrader's latest. It's not about a taxi driver, but we found it has a lot in common with that movie. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember, every muscle must be tight.
0: And
1: I know I'm alone And close to the end Of the feeling